Okay, that's enough then in terms of announcements. I want to get directly back to Ezra today. Uh, we finished up chapter 3 last time and briefly reviewing again. This picks up the story of, of history and is projected into prophecy via Haggai and Zechariah uh, so that this story is certainly worth our examining today because God works in patterns and what he has done historically can be taken as a pattern for what is to come in the future. And Ezra picks this story up right when Cyrus appeared uh, and asked for volunteers to go build the temple in Jerusalem. So uh, Haggai and Zechariah pick it up here just in oh, another, I get it, beginning of chapter 5. They come into the scene and begin to encourage those who were there to do the job. So this was, the setting was right after the fall of Babylon when Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, took over what had been the Babylonian Empire and Isaiah, I mean Daniel apparently approached him and says, you know, you happen to be in the writings of Isaiah of our God. And uh, he must have been uh, quite impressed that he would have been mentioned there and he took a favorable attitude and decided to help the people of God. So we have seen in Isaiah 44 and 45 that there will be, that is an end-time prophecy directly, not a historical record uh, of what will happen. <clears throat> so we know there has to be a Cyrus show up here at the end who is of the world, is, does not know God, but whom God shows the ins and outs of some historical things and leads him to the secret and hidden treasures of God. And Ezra seems to indicate that those treasures would include the temple vessels. Uh, that's part of the historical pattern that we have before us. So sometime right here at the end, right near the fall of Babylon today, uh, there has to be Osiris appear. He has to approach the leadership of the church, whatever, wherever that particular part of the leadership be, and he will offer to help the church in building the temple of God. I find that very encouraging that God would set someone up like that and bring him to his people, uh, and he'd be willing to work with them. So we went through then an inventory in chapter 2 of people that would come, and we saw a separation. You have to be able to show that you are a part of the true people of God, just as they had to prove they were genealogically true Israelites before they were allowed to help, and that that, had to be, that separation had to be made. Then in chapter 3, we saw the seventh month come. They kept the Feast of Trumpets. Thereafter, the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> and work toward getting the people lined out as to who would lay the foundation of the temple of the eternal. They had to be at least 20 years of age uh, because that is God's view of when a person is fully responsible and mature and makes his decision on his own, age 20. And then stood up Joshua and began to set forward the work of the eternal of God. 
And then they laid the foundation, and the ancient men who had seen the old temple cried and weeped, laughed and danced for joy that the foundation for a new temple was being laid. So that's where we closed it out last week. And it does say in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that in the end time, where there will be a former temple and a latter temple, and that there will be old men who have seen the glory of the first or former temple, and they will compare it to the latter temple, which is about to be built, and will weep for joy that God is reestablishing his people here at the end time. So we've had a time when worldwide has basically disappeared. It has withered, as Ezekiel 17 shows, <clears throat> basically disappeared from the scene, and God is going to stir a remnant people to come together and build another temple to reestablish God's way. So let's pick it up then in chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple to the Lord God of Israel, uh-oh, enemies appeared, adversaries. Now, remember also that this was at the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity and that the church itself in this end time, and this shows that the pattern all the way through is the same. The church has now existed for a little over 70 years here in the end time. And God is beginning to work toward building the latter temple. And he has freed people to do that. So the time element is essentially the same as it was historically in this prophecy for the end time. And that is picked up in Zechariah 1, uh, where it shows that at the end of 70 years, God would begin to do something. So when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built the temple unto the eternal God of Israel, then, came, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up here. So they had brought in people from various lands to replace the Jews. Of course, Israel had gone north before the, the other uh, ten tribes. The lost so-called ten tribes had left. The Jews with Benjamin and Levi were the only ones left. So when Babylon took them captive, they did leave some there. But in the meantime, they also moved in other peoples to repopulate and be sure that the land was farmed and things were taken care of. And they basically did a replacement of the Jews by sending in these Gentile peoples. So actually they were adversaries or enemies, but they made themselves out to be friends. Now here again we have a pattern. We are going to have those, if we are a part of this end-time effort of the prophecies to rebuild the temple of God, I believe that the pattern shows that there will be people who come posing to be friends, to be with us, but indeed there will be enemies. They will smile. They will say, we're with you. But behind our backs, they will have their knives. 
Whether those knives be their teeth or literal knives remains to be seen, and it could be both, and certainly the words. So they'll want to build with us, but a difference has to be made. Now remember that this story has to do with Zerubbabel and Joshua, whom Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11 uh, prove are the two witnesses of the end time. So this historical story uses those names, and God brings them forward to the end time. I don't think they'll be born with those names, lest we uh, easily identify whom God was going to use here at the end. Does anybody know of people who were born in worldwide maybe 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago named Zerubbabel? You might find a Joshua in there, quite a few of those probably. But I doubt you'll find a Zerubbabel anywhere. I don't, never met one. I've been around the church for a long time. Never heard of one. But the fulfillment will be of the job, not necessarily of the names. That's the key thing to remember there. So this has to happen. Now let's understand here that a plumb line is given to Zerubbabel. That is shown in Zechariah 4 and other places through the prophecies. Isaiah mentions it several times. But if you go to Revelation 11, 1 through 3, you will find that it tells those leaders of the end-time church that they are to measure the temple. They're given a plumb line, a reed, a rod, to measure uprightness, to measure spirituality, if you will whether people really are of the truth or whether they really aren't. A separation had to be made back here. They had to tell certain people, no, you can't be a part of this. Now, that's the historical pattern. Will that happen again? What does it tell Zerubbabel and Joshua in the end time to do? It says, measure the temple, leave out the court of the Gentiles, don't worry about them to start with, but measure the altar and them that worship therein. That is, the ministry and those that come to the temple. Now there will be some who will not like this idea because there are those who think that we should not have a priesthood or a ministry today and that men should not be told or should not tell us what to do, or we should not have any in charge. But God, throughout history, has always worked through men. Sorry, that's just the way it is. And these prophecies tell us that's the way it will be again. Now, when they are to measure the altar, the ministry, and the people, God has given to men, two men in particular, that job to determine who can and cannot be a part of this. I thought I would clue us in ahead of time to know that that's the way God is going to do it. And we might as well get used to the idea and that men will determine and make those decisions. They are the ones that God gives the measuring rod to to determine uprightness and spiritual character. And they will have to make hard decisions 
about who will be involved and who will not. That is the historical record, and it is the prophetic projection. So what was the reaction back here in Ezra 4? Okay, go to verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel, so it's not just two, but there are others who are also principal or chief men, as Micah 5 says, said to them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house to our God, but we ourselves together will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So Cyrus will come to God's people, and he will say, the temple, Jerusalem, have to be built, as Isaiah 44, the last verse says. And then it will be up to the leadership that God has placed in the church to determine who is qualified and who is not. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. So they were adversaries. They came and posed as friends. <laughs> but when they were turned away, then they became outright enemies and did all they could to weaken and stop the process. I would like to think that it would be easy to build the end-time temple. But God shows here in a historical pattern that it will not be so. But there will be adversaries. There will be enemies. Now, maybe perhaps we could hearken back a bit to worldwide. You know, worldwide, in many respects, is sort of receding in our rearview mirror and can hardly be seen anymore. Over 20 years ago, since Herbert Armstrong died and uh, the Dukach Bunch took over. So, in a way, it's ancient history, but there was somewhat of a pattern there. In a minor way, I think, Herbert Armstrong and his son did fulfill uh, the building of a temple. They were not the final two, but they certainly built the temple of God in the end time and had the character of Zerubbabel, and GTA had the problems of Joshua. I don't know that he ever repented. Perhaps he did, and I hope so. But that was a short-lived situation. There were enemies that entered in. <clears throat> we were raided by raider. Um, we had the staff infection of Stavronides. And we had Bakioki who backed in. And the Takachas who brought their gangster ideas from Chicago and became part and parcel with and part of the leadership of that church. They were not turned away. They were not told, you cannot build with us. And look what happened. They were allowed to be there. And they wormed their way in, and they destroyed it. I would not be at all surprised to find out sometime that Raider and his bunch were involved with the state of California, in destroying what was there. They did everything they could to weaken it, and ultimately, of course, the two unclean birds of Zechariah 5, which I would assume at this point were Joseph Sr. and Jr., set the church on its base, on its own foundation, in Babylon. And there it has withered and died, according to Ezekiel 17 and the parable and riddle that is there.
So, in a way, that's ancient history, isn't it? I think there are some certainly some parallels there in what will happen with the latter temple that happened in the former temple. Because Ezra doesn't pick it up at that point. Now, there was a time ten years ago when I tried to apply Ezra more to Worldwide Church of God and what had happened there. But truly speaking, Ezra picks up at the fall of Babylon. Cyrus shows up and begins to work with the people of God at about that same time. So Worldwide is indeed in the rearview mirror when this story in Ezra actually begins. We are very near that juncture now. If you've been watching the news, it appears we're very close to the financial collapse of Babylon. Whether it hangs on another month or two or six or eight or ten remains to be seen. But the cracks are getting bigger and bigger and the wall is leaning further outward, as Isaiah indicates, before it actually collapses. So I think we're very near this especially since there have to be some old guys around who can remember worldwide at its best and see the temple built in glory at the end. So there is a period of time in which it has to be built. So these guys are getting more and more toothless all along. I'd say most of them are past 70 now and uh, singing songs from 70 on up maybe. Those who did not hear that, <laughs> I mean, this tape will go out and they won't have heard the announcement. So it'll just, what was that all about? But we were picking on somebody here for you who hear this tape next week or six months from now that didn't hear the announcements. You know, I always have to keep that in the back of my mind. This will be heard uh, a year, two years, three years down the road. And sometimes when I think back about some of the things I said in the Minor Prophet series from 97 on, well, I started really preaching it in early 96. I didn't start into that particular series until a little later. But I cringe sometimes when I think of some of the things I said back then. That, uh, you know, like supporting the Jewish calendar, which I did, and uh, various other things that since we have changed and come to understand better. But uh, even some comments, you know, or jokes or whatever, I mean, ten years later, people say, what was that all about? And then I guess it goes on. But hopefully they're getting the message out of it and not being thrown aside by some of those things. Someone said two or three years ago, well, you ought to redo that series. Oh, wow. You know, we've, we've had other information to cover. And, and uh, the basic truth is there. The basic understanding of what is going on and will go on is there. And God's solutions to what is happening are laid out there. So I don't feel compelled at this point to go back and redo that, but to let it stand as is. Anyway, much of what happened, I think, in Worldwide, we're going to see again, picking this story up uh, at the time that Cyrus appears on the scene and moving forward from there because God does work in patterns, whether it's from 2,000 or years ago or 4,000 years ago or from even our recent history that you and I can remember, those patterns will still be there in the church. 
So I expect that the end time temple will have enemies. In fact, we've even made comments about how as God shows his hand to the world, everyone is going to hate it. And that is shown in the book of Revelation very clearly, that the whole world will follow the beast, and only a very, very, very few people will be faithful to God. So the rest of the world will be an enemy. And what is the historical pattern here is only a minor fraction of the worldwide implications of the prophetic story. In other words, this isn't just a pattern repeated on a small scale. This will be repeated on an international scale. It will include all peoples everywhere. So prepare for not just a little disagreement. Prepare for total disagreement and absolute war, which will occur before this is over. God tells his remnant people, I will make you a new threshing instrument with teeth, and you will come down on the governments, the mountains of this world. That's mentioned in Isaiah as well as in the book of Micah. So, there will be enemies, just as here. But it's, he said, we're going to do what Cyrus says needs to be done, and what the Bible echoes throughout. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building, verse 5, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So they actually hired people to try to destroy and stop what was going on. That counselors today, we might say, well, counselor in our society means lawyers. Uh, that might very well be. In fact, with Worldwide, isn't that what happened? Lawyers came against the church. So I would not be at all surprised to see that we have lawyers come against the church here at the end with the beginnings of the final temple of God. And I hate that almost worse than armed men coming after us because dealing with lawyers is no fun. Anyway, will it take that form or will it not? We shall see. So they were there to frustrate their purpose. You know, you're trying to do something and conditions come along that frustrate you. Frustration is not fun. I hate to be frustrated. You know, you're trying to get something done and things keep coming along that slow you down or stop you or divert your attention or whatever. And it's frustrating. Whether you're man or woman, you know, the phone rings, the... Uh, cows get out, the tractor breaks, uh, the myriad of things that can happen. The car won't start, you know, you've got to go to town and do a job and you can't get there. And uh, patience, though, is one of the fruits of the Spirit against which there is no law. And we're here to learn some lessons. We'll get into that. We're not going to go into Ezra tomorrow. I've got something else to go into. Uh, that ties in with a sermon from Trumpets. Anyway, that's tomorrow. So they hired people to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even till the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then Haggai, the setting there is the second year of Darius, when they actually began building, started building the temple. Uh, because that's where Haggai picks up the story, second year of Darius. 
and says, get the temple built. Now, you might lay the foundation, and then there's a period of time when there's frustration. Well, if we reach a time like that, we should not be frustrated by it, because we know it's coming, and we should be prepared for it, right? And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they to him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem, so accusations will be made, won't they? And in the days of Artaxerxes wrote Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their companions to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. Rehum, the chancellor, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, in this sort. Then wrote Rehum, the chancellor, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, and I won't go through those names, uh, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar brought over and set in the cities of Samaria, and the rest that are on this side of the river and at such a time. <laughs> Remember, Samaria was that area that was uh, occupied by the ten tribes who had left. This is the copy of the letter they sent to him, even to Artaxerxes, the king, the servants, uh, or thy servants, the men on this side of the river and at such a time. Be it known to the king that the Jews which came up from you to us are come to Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. These Jews have come in and are building this rebellious bad place back. That's the news sent to the king. Now I take it that Cyrus is on God's side, but then you have other uh, authorities in the land who aren't necessarily. And the appeal is not made to Cyrus, the appeal is made to Artaxerxes who followed. Be it known now to the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up again, when, then they will they not pay toll, tribute, and custom, and so you shall endamage the revenue of the kings. These people aren't going to pay their taxes. They said, you won't get the money that normally you should get from this area because these people won't do it that way. Now, would that be a false accusation? I think so, because Christ did say, didn't he not, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If his inscription's on it and he demands it, let him have it. But this was a lying witness. Now, because we have maintenance from the king's palace... We, uh, we ourselves receive checks from your government, they say. And it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, have we sent and certified the king. We're going to put you in knowledge of this, lest you be cheated out of what you should have. That search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, so, you, so shall you find in the book of the records, and know that this city is a rebellious city, and hurtful to kings and provinces, and that they have moved sedition within the same of old time, for which cause was this city destroyed. It said these people were in sedition against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed it, because they were bad people. Now, this reminds me of that sermon we had a few weeks ago, in which I was talking about the uh, yoke of wood, 
and yokes of iron, and that God's people were supposed to, when God was punishing them for their sins, they were supposed to honor the government which they were under, not fight it, and not have insurrection. But in some cases they did, and God made the yoke even heavier. In other words, his idea was for people to repent, not rebel. He sent us into captivity, into slavery, to teach us repentance. And the church, in the end time, was founded in this land, which is an evil, immoral, decadent area, ruled over by Satan and the minions of Babylon. And God put us here to teach us, to humble us, to help us begin to go a different way than the way Babylon was going. But we didn't do too well, and therefore God destroyed the church, and he is going to then rebuild it with a remnant of people who will be faithful and who will follow his ways and his laws and his directions. That's the way he decided to do it. And he decided that a long time ago. We'll get into that more tomorrow. So, there will be enemies who will try to get us in trouble with the civil authorities. Verse 16, we certify the king that if this city be built again, uh, and the walls thereof set up, by this means you shall have no portion on this side of the river. These people will become independent, and your influence will wane. We don't want this to happen to you. What they really didn't want was the Jews doing what the Jews were doing. And what people who hate us will not want to see is us doing what we are doing because God said, do it. And because God sent Cyrus to us, who told us to do it as well. but they will appeal to others to try to get it stopped because they themselves might not be able to do it. Then sent the king an answer to Rehum, the chancellor, and to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their companions that dwell in Samaria, and to the rest beyond the river, peace, and at such a time, the letter which you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I commanded, and search has been made, and it is found that this city of old time has made insurrection against kings, and the rebellion and sedition have been made therein. There have been mighty kings also over Jerusalem, which have ruled over all countries beyond the river, and toll, tribute, and custom was paid to them. Give you now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded, until another commandment shall be given from me. Take heed now that you fail not to do this. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of the king Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. They said when they got that letter back from Artaxerxes, wow, this is a great day. We have the king behind us. We can use all the force and power of the king's rulership to stop this work on the temple of God and on Jerusalem. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That happened to be, according to records I've read, between 14 and 17 years, depending on which commentary you're looking at. 
So they were able to cause the work to cease for a period of time. Now, I don't know whether or not it may have been this associated and tied together with what happened in Worldwide. In other words, we did have lawyers and counselors who were hired, perhaps behind the scenes by Stan Rader, I would not be surprised, who came in and caused to cease the building of God's church. And there were enemies from within and enemies from without. And it happened before our very eyes. The church ceased. The church has been destroyed. So it may be that this period of time in here, when nothing is being built, is this interim period. And yet, on the other hand, (laughs) I look back and see where this story actually picked up. And it was after the destruction of the temple, after the captivity, and a new temple, a replacement temple, was about to be built. So it may be that this isn't a carryover from the destruction of Worldwide in an interim period before the temple work can be resumed, but it may be that in front of us we also are going to have enemies who will stop the building, and it may cease for a while and then be carried on. Uh, we, we may get a glimpse of that here in the next chapter. Let's, let's move on. <clears throat> then the prophets Haggai, or then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied of the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even to them. <coughs> The setting was Jerusalem. It was the two men who are listed in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11 as the two witnesses of the end time. Let's bear that in mind in getting the place setting and the timing here. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, or Joshua, the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. So these two leaders will appear. Other people will be stirred to action as Haggai shows in his story. And there will be other of the ministry who will be faithful who will also show up. At the same time came to them Patmai, the governor on this side of the river, and Charthabozni and their companions and said thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? So they got it stopped for 14 to 17 years. Then they rose up to do it, and that's where Haggai picks up the story. That's where it moves completely from history to prophecy of the end time. Who's commanded you to do this? Who do you think you are? Now, do you think that when God's people begin to come together and put together a temple that will be far more glorious than Worldwide was, the people will question, who told you to do this? I suspect that will be the case. Probably a fairly common attitude. Then said we to them after this manner, what are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. So when things really get going, God is going to protect 
and they will not be made to cease. Till the matter came to Darius, and then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. So they were going to try through, not Artaxerxes this time, but through Darius to get it stopped. The copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor on this side of the river, and Shethar Boznai and his companions, the Epharsachites, which were on this side of the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him wherein was written this, Under Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is built with great stones and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goes fast on and prospers in their hands. So there is actually going to be a beginning made and rows of timbers and, and rocks, stones put in in this story to build the house of the great God, and there will be those who question it. Then asked we those elders and said to them thus, Who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls? Where do you derive your authority? We asked their names also to certify you that we might write the names of the men that were the chief of them. And thus returned us this answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and build a house that was builded these many years ago, which a great king of Israel builded up, builded and set up. They just said, we're doing this for God. They didn't necessarily say, we got a decree here or a decree there, but we're the servants of God. Very simple, straightforward answer. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. Now you and I, today, if someone approached us and said, you think you're going to be a part of the building of the temple of God? Where is your authority? I think we would have to say, we are doing this because we are the people of God, and it has to be done because God says so in his word. Very simple explanation. And we could also say that we had a church in Babylon that was here about 70 years. It was torn down. It was hauled away. It withered and died. And it has to be restored. Just like these people said. Our father sinned. We did not do it the way God wanted it done. And he blew it apart. He spewed it out of his mouth. We are not here to restore worldwide. We are not here to rebuild worldwide church of God. We are here to do something better than what was done before. And we ourselves must become more spiritually aware, more spiritually with God than we were then, Otherwise, we will suffer the same fate as our fathers. We must do better than we did before. Now, is it arrogant or prideful to say that? No, I didn't say we are better. I didn't say we are spiritually superior. I say that I grew up in the midst of the former temple. 
and that I was not what I should have been. And therefore, I was one of those who was scattered and spewed out of God's mouth. And I must do better than I formerly did. So by saying this, I am not accusing our leaders or fathers. I'm saying I wasn't what I should have been, and I'm part of the spittle out of the corner of Christ's mouth that he spit out. So to come to the level that I was when I was in Worldwide is not anywhere near what I have to become. There's a lot of work cut out for me ahead. And I think that's the only view that we can take that will get us where we need to be, brethren. I really do. That we take personal responsibility for worldwide coming apart and us being spewed out. If no one takes responsibility, no one will change. I've said that over and over, but I think in the light of what we're looking at here, it is good to review that idea. It is good lest others think that we think we're really something. No, we're not claiming to be the only Philadelphians. I'm claiming to be a Laodicean that was spewed out of the mouth of God and needs to repent and take personal responsibility for why Worldwide ended up the way it did. And only if we do that will we change. Anyone who will not admit that they weren't what they should have been will not change anything. Because if they think they're okay and that they have no problems and that they were Philadelphians there for the apple of God's eye, why does the apple of God's eye need to change? See? It's a trap you fall into with your own thinking and you blame someone else. As long as everybody blames everybody else, no one will do what needs to be done. You and I are in a prime opportunity to admit our faults, to admit our errors, to admit our wrong attitudes, wrong thinking, and change it. And therefore, be usable by God when he builds a greater, more glorious temple. He does not expect us to go on as we were. He expects us to upgrade. Now, that might not be real good news, but hey, didn't God even tell Philadelphia, along with all the other six churches, to overcome, to change, to grow, not to remain as you are, God does not want anyone in this room, I don't care who you are, to stay as you are. None of us meet the standard of the Father and the Son in heaven. None of us come close to that. We are not here to compare ourselves among ourselves and say, well, I may not be much, but at least I'm better than you. Which is what nearly all the churches are doing and nearly all the people who are part of the church of God are doing. We cannot afford that luxury. Comparing ourselves among other parts of the church of God or even among ourselves as individuals here is not wise. It is stupid. 
foolish and folly. Our comparison has to be of what we are in regard to the Father and the Son. And all of us fall very, very short of that. So we have work to do. Now, he doesn't say, because you fall short, I have no use for you. Let's be encouraged, not discouraged by this. He says, you are what you are, overcome. And I will grant with you to sit in my throne. So it's not like this is discouraging and does not give us opportunity. It gives us wonderful opportunity if we will be honest and recognize where our problems lie and then work on them and overcome them and we'll be part of the kingdom of God. I mean, there is a reward offered that should make it worth working on ourselves, not just going on, going on as we are, but changing. And you cannot recognize what you need to change unless you're honest with yourself. That's why at Passover every year we're told, examine yourself carefully. And of course, we need to do that all the time. But that is a specific time of the year when God shows who was sacrificed for us and makes very clear the vast gap or gulf between Christ and ourselves, and how much we need to change. Now we are about to enter into the Feast of Tabernacles time, and we are here to hopefully, in that festival process, have changed so that we can be part of the leadership in the wonderful world tomorrow. That with atonement coming tomorrow, we can become the bride of Christ and then be used of him to rule the entire family of God and a peaceful world which is to come. So this, the very feast and festival season and clock that goes around every year is here to tell us that yes, some will overcome. Some will be the bride of Christ. And there will be a peaceful thousand years on this earth and of his kingdom and its glory will come no end. It will always be. So it's encouraging as we go through the feast cycle. There will be some who respond, and we can be among them. That's exciting. So the people admitted that God destroyed the house and carried the people away to Babylon. And the worldwide church of God has been carried off into Babylon. But in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. So here we go back to Cyrus. And he says, and will say, Isaiah 44 says, the temple of the foundation must be laid and Jerusalem must be builded. Isaiah 45 or 44, last verse. The vessels also of gold and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, those did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, which was the Persian word for Zerubbabel, whom he had made governor, and said to him, Take these vessels, go, carry them to the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be builded in his 
place. Zechariah talks about Jerusalem being builded even in her own place, as if it had been removed and a place changed or something had happened. Then came the same Sheshbazar and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And since that time, even though now, has it been in building, and yet it is not finished. Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so, the decree was made of Cyrus the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. <coughs> So there was a delay. Now it says this was in Jerusalem and build it in its place. Now let's cogitate here for a moment and perhaps speculate a bit. But nothing has been done in the Middle East, that Jerusalem that is there, to date. There are an astounding number of programs, and they are increasing, it seems, the last year or two or three, and especially in the last six months, showing the search for the temple vessels of God. And they keep saying, well, we don't know why we can't find them. And maybe somebody carried them off. And the latest one that just came out here this last week, they even went to Tibet, I guess, or Pakistan. I didn't see it. I've heard about it and talk to the monks there to see if they had them. Of course, they wouldn't talk to them. No appointment, no appointment. Now, do you really think that God would turn the vessels of his temple over to a bunch of monks somewhere? I really kind of doubt it. But let's understand something. And I think we do, because I can go back to Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 and pick the story up there as we have many times, that the church today, the New Testament church, uh, is typical of Zion and Jerusalem. So when God speaks of Zion and Jerusalem at the end, he is speaking, first of all, of the church, not some place in the Middle East. Now, where did God do his work in the end time? in this nation for the most part. Ninety plus percent of the church in the end time was right here in this nation. Now he selected a man to start the former temple who came, was born in Iowa, who moved to Oregon for business reasons early in his life, and he actually began to study in Oregon and established the church there, but he didn't stay there very long. He moved it to Los Angeles because he needed broadcast capabilities and to begin to, to broadcast out, and Oregon just wasn't the place for that. Now, the two places, given my choice, I would have really rather God kept it in Oregon. I'd have rather gone to college there. I'd have rather gone back there for conferences because Oregon is a beautiful place with a wonderful climate and is very productive and green, at least west of the Cascades. It's a beautiful area, but God instead caused Herbert Armstrong to move it down to Los Angeles. It may be the city of angels, but it's fallen angels. Ugly, dirty, filthy, polluted place. When I first arrived there in 1966, that summer, 
I didn't even know there were mountains there for a week or more. Then it got a rain or whatever it was, Santa Ana wind, cleared out the smog, and man, there's mountains right there. Couldn't believe it. Nasty place. But Ezekiel 17, the parable and the riddle, says that it would be moved to a land of traffic and merchants, which is what Los Angeles is. That it would grow there, and that it would be betrayed there and destroyed there, and that that king, Herbert Armstrong, would die there, and so would, would his successor, Joseph de Koch. That is now ancient history. Church-wise, that has occurred. And Joe DeCotch, Jr., also betrayed what Herbert Armstrong had said to do, and he has shriveled and died in that land. Now, he hasn't died physically yet, but the church has withered and is about to die. And God says he is going to take another twig of a cedar, and he's going to start over at the end of Ezekiel 17. Well, that is going to happen. But where? Now, God showed that he wanted the work done from Pasadena, in the middle of the city of angels, Los Angeles. <coughs> and it spread from there around the world as a low-growing vine and spread out from there, as Ezekiel 17 says. Now, it was basically destroyed and withered in its furrows, like it says there in Ezekiel 17. And it's going to be rebuilt. Now, if God shows America as part of the original land of promise to Abraham to build a church here, and most of the spiritual Jews, if you will, church members, were here, would he choose to put it in the Middle East now, or would he do it in the same general area that he did it before? And would some of those old men who saw worldwide at its zenith or at its spiritually greatest strength, which I think was in the 50s and perhaps early 60s, late 50s, there were more healings and more spiritual gifts, I think, in, during that period of time than any time in the 70-year history of the church. So, no, it wasn't as great in the physical plant and so on as it was later in the 70s and 80s, but certainly spiritually, I think its greatest strength, and that's the most important to consider, was back in the late 50s, early 60s, perhaps. So I think there got to be guys old enough, this is my personal opinion here, old enough to see it and witness it during that period of time and again at the very end. So they'd be getting pretty old at that point. Now, God established it in the southwestern part of the United States. Los Angeles, other than San Diego, is about as far southwest as you can get. And it says in Isaiah, I forget the exact chapter, but 45, 6, 7, somewhere right in there, it says that God will provide a man who was born in the north who will come from the east. If he's coming from the east, then he has to go west. So God has focused on this nation as that area that he calls, if you will, Jerusalem here at the end. It is the leader of Israel today. 
There are very few Israelites in the Middle East today. There are some Jews, probably more Edomites, who think they are Jews or claim to be, than there are true Jews there. And insofar as I know, there was never anyone baptized who was a native of that land in this end-time church. Now, maybe there's one or two or three that I don't know about, but there was never a work done in that area. It was done mostly here. There were a lot of people baptized in the Philippines, <laughs> Australia, New Zealand, uh, even Burma, places all over the East, Asia, many, many in Africa. But insofar as I know, none in the Middle East. Now, does that speak volumes or not? God has done nothing there. They have found nothing there of the vessels of the temple. And many hundreds, thousands of people have searched every nook and cranny they can of that area trying to find the things of God and so far have been unable to do so. God's work in the end time has totally emanated from America. There's a pattern there. And I will not be surprised that all of these scriptures, these prophecies, and even this historical record will be set in this land as well. Now, will Jerusalem show up to be here in this general area of the southwest? Maybe, maybe not the original Jerusalem. But if God is working in this area with his church, he says Jerusalem shall be built as towns without walls with much men and cattle. So, if he started the end-time work in the southwest, it was destroyed there, Will it be reestablished in the same area? Question. Would not be surprised. Would it be reestablished in Los Angeles? I would be very surprised. Because Micah tells us, leave the cities and go dwell in the wilderness and the fields, and there you will be delivered. And it talks about the deserts, the mountains, and the wilderness. So I do not believe that God's end-time temple and church the latter temple will be established, A, in a city, because God said, leave the city and gather yourselves in the wilderness and in the desert area. So I believe that those towns without walls will be there, and God calls those Jerusalem. So I suspect that the pattern will repeat, and God will do it in the American Southwest, but not in a city but out in the wilderness, deserts, and mountains. And that we qualify, if we be part of that, as the end-time Jerusalem, because that's where he works and where his people are, where his church is, he calls Jerusalem and Zion. So it is both a spiritual thing, and it might very easily turn out to be a physical thing as well. We shall see I want to go back here a little bit in chapter 5 to verse 8. Be it known to the king that we went into the province of Judea 
So God is going to call the area that this works in, Judah or Judea. It'll be Jerusalem and Judea. Jerusalem was in Judea, wasn't it? <coughs> and the end-time church, wherever it is, is in then Jerusalem and Judea, and in fact is defined by Hebrews 12 as being Judah, Jerusalem, and Zion. Okay? So wherever the church is, God is going to establish as Judea, to the house of the great God, which is built with great stones and timbers laid in the walls. Interesting, he calls it the house of the great God. Is it not? House, temple, church of the great God. There is indication in Zechariah 4, I believe, and I think it is echoed here, that there would come one who would lay a foundation for the church of the house of the great God. It appears there's an interim period when the work does not go on, that it stagnates, it does not grow spiritually, and truly build the temple of God. But he says to Zerubbabel, <clears throat> your hands laid the foundation of the temple. They will finish it. It would not surprise me that someone got the name right and laid a right foundation. But at some point, came up against something they feared to do, would not move forward, and therefore ceased to grow and stagnated. But at some point, that would change, and the work would go on and be finished. I said in the Minor Prophets series a long time ago that it appears the rubber bell was out to lunch for a while. And God said, you started it, look, buddy, you're going to finish it. We shall see. It may be that in the end time, from a prophetic standpoint, we're already in the low. That a foundation indeed was laid, and then for some reason, shall not go into the moment necessarily, there was stagnation and lack of growth and frustration of purpose for a period of time. And it shows in Isaiah 52, verses 7 and 8, that God is going to turn things around with the church, and that then the eyes of God's leadership will turn together, and that they will sing together in joy when God restores Jerusalem, or restores the church. So some things probably will have to happen before whoever this is speaking of gets the attitude turned around. We shall see. But the pattern is all here in the historical record. And I would not be surprised if the latter temple is called the house of the great God. Well, we got down, and it has to be builded in its place. 
we got down to the end of chapter 5, and I'm almost out of time, so I think we'll stop right there. But it gives us some things to chew on and perhaps think about and understand that this procedure, this process that God has initiated for the end time has to be somewhere, somehow, in process if things are as close as we think that they are. It has to be. And there has to be a Cyrus that shows up and puts his weight into it and says, look, this has to be done. And some people pick up on it and volunteer to help. Well, the story's all here. And we need to be looking for any evidence of that story beginning to happen somewhere, somehow, some way, with someone. Otherwise, we have a long way to go. And I don't think we do. I think it's very, very near. And the collapse of the Babylonian economy can't be too far off, nor can the enslavement of this nation. So things are getting close. Should we begin to be able to see and to identify how and where God might be working? At some point, we need to be able to do that. So let's keep our eyes and ears open.